Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance based in Columbus. Then I'll talk with a doctor at Ohio State about a clinical trial that's taking patients who suffer from mild memory loss. In the second half hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents information about the State Board of Education's ongoing controversy over compliance with new Title IX regulations impacting transgender students and an effort by the City of Columbus to pass additional gun safety measures. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with a recruiter for the Ohio State Highway Patrol, which needs more troopers. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Judy Mobley. She is the CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Children's Hunger Alliance? Well, Children's Hunger Alliance is a nonprofit organization headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Um, We're statewide, and our mission is to provide kids that don't have enough meals to live a healthy life food. And how big of a problem is that in Ohio? Well, it's a very um, big problem. Uh, The pandemic obviously exasperated that problem, but with all the various programs and outpouring of help from people, um, right now we would say that over 400,000 children in Ohio live in a food insecure home, meaning they don't know where their next meal will come from. Wow. In uh, recent years, a lot of it has been centered on making sure that they get meals through school, or even in the summer through programs when there's no school in session, and I guess that's a big part of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the statistics that I think people will find uh, surprising is only 10% of kids that that are qualifying for free or reduced-price meals during the school year even have a summer site to go to. So summer is a very difficult time for children that are in need. And this even goes to kids not in school yet. You also work with daycare centers and and folks that have their own setup at home, right? Yeah, we do. So our work is in after-school programs, as you mentioned, daycare centers, helping um, people that take care of children in their homes, uh, summer work. And then the other piece of our work that we've added over the last couple years is trying to provide kids with weekend meal boxes so that if they are truly relying on their schools for their um, nutrition, that when they're out of school for those two days in the weekend, you know, hunger doesn't take a break. And so we give them a meal box when they leave school on Fridays to help keep them going until they come back on Monday morning. What sorts of meals are these? Are they similar to what kids get in school or what? Well, typically in the school meal, they would get a hot meal or um, a cold meal. In our case, the majority of our sites are getting, uh, in an after-school setting, are getting what we refer to as a ready-to-serve meal. Um, And some of that is simply because of the cost of meals now, food prices going up. Um, And in our weekend boxes, of course, they're shelf-stable, ready-to-serve meals. What's happening with this entire effort because of inflation? Yeah, well, it's hit, it's hit this part of, um, of our work very hard. Many of our food vendors, uh, obviously, um, their prices are going up, so what they have to charge us is going up, and cost for staffing has gone up. So in the case of, for example, our child care center work, 
we have a waiting list right now. Um, the same is true for our weekend program. We have a waiting list right now um, simply because of the cost of everything. And, you know, we're hoping to, through this program uh, that's going on with the Central Ohio Toyota dealers, raise some funds that will help us maybe get some of those people off of the waiting list and we can start serving their kids. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, Central Ohio Toyota dealers uh, kind of uh, tied around Rivalry Week. How does all this work? It's a great way to um, do some good in our community. The way I understand it is the 10 dealers locally, the Toyota dealers, have all um, decided to work uh, together and against each other, a little bit of both. So they're rivals in, the, in that they're trying to see who can raise the most money. Um, to help us feed kids. And so at the end of the time period that they've set aside, um, we'll see who raised the most. And I believe the dealership that does raise the most, there's a special prize for them. So for us, the special prize is the funds to allow us to just reach more kids right here in Central Ohio that need our help. So how do folks get involved in that through the dealerships? So it's about donating money to help them execute this campaign that's focused on ending childhood hunger locally. And um, they can go to any of those dealers and uh, make a donation. Talking with Judy Mobley, she's the CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. The pandemic, Congress passed a bunch of programs to help people through the pandemic, and some of that involved food efforts and expanding the school lunch programs and that type of thing. How has it impacted these sorts of efforts to feed kids? Well, the one really critical um, waiver that they passed for us was allowing us to feed kids differently in the summer. The typical rules require kids to come to a location, sit down, and eat. And in the middle of the pandemic, of course, you didn't want kids sitting together and eating. You wanted them to come, get their meals, and take them home. And so what we refer to as grab and go is exactly what we did. Um, We fed in Ohio, not just Children's Hunger Alliance, but all the sponsors of summer programs. Um, With that in place, we were able to provide uh, over 4 million more meals than we were doing in a typical summer when they had to come and sit and eat. So um, it really made a difference. It also allowed us to do a model of mobile feeding so we could load up a van and go to multiple stops and feed a lot more kids Um, and so a lot of good things did come out of it we just would love it if some of the things that we learned through that could be made permanent through some changes in the child uh, nutrition um, legislation and from what I understand, states still have a lot of money that has not been spent from this relief package from Congress. And I guess there's been ongoing efforts to bolster contributions to food pantries and to these types of programs as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the state of Ohio does have considerable funds available, as do cities and counties. And um, you better believe that we're out there trying to um, get some of those so that we can continue to expand and help kids. And we really appreciate all the legislators, elected officials that have worked with us. Um, They all see the need. There's just a lot of competing priorities, as you might expect. 
Well, this situation that we're in right now must be very troubling to you because, you know, a lot of people, there's still more jobs available than people, it seems like. And yet there's just this feeling that a recession is coming and that this inflation has, I mean, we're talking about inflation that unless you were in your 50s or older, you've never seen anything like this. And that's hitting just about everything that you'd look for at the grocery store is 25% higher or sometimes a whole lot more than that higher than it was a year or two ago. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dave. And I think that what we sometimes forget is the families that were working to help might have already been struggling to make ends meet before we started to have all these other um, factors come into play with um, you know, increased food costs being one of them, with the increased gas prices being another, that are just day-to-day requirements of living. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, my staff hear me say regularly and anytime I get an opportunity to talk to somebody about our work is, you know, if we don't give kids one of their most basic necessities, and that's food, you know, how do we expect them to do well in school, uh, grow up to be a productive adult in our society and break this cycle of poverty that they were born into. And when their families have trouble providing them with that basic necessity of food, they have to rely on organizations like their schools and like Children's Hunger Alliance to fill that gap. Um, so the work we do is um, really important work for the kids around Ohio. You have offices as well in Cleveland, Toledo, and Cincinnati, I think. And do you work with, uh, like, the, the food banks, the major food banks in Ohio? Or how, how does all that work to distribute food and be involved in these programs? We don't directly partner with food banks. Um, when you think about their work, which is so critical, you know, they're working with the whole family. And, and a, a parent or a guardian would need to come to the food bank to pick up food for their family. In our case, um, we're working directly with locations that are feeding kids. So all necessary, all complementary, um, but again, our work is not directly with the food bank. What about volunteers or help that you need to do these kinds of services? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. So through, during the pandemic, when our food vendors couldn't keep up with our demand, we uh, leased a warehouse and started packing meals ourselves. And that led to the weekend program that we're now doing. And so it's a great opportunity for volunteers to come and help us pack weekend meal boxes. And also there are some opportunities to actually go to schools, um, you know, on a Friday afternoon and distribute meal boxes. There's nothing quite like putting a box of food in the hands of a child to really understand how important it is, um, the work that we're doing. So volunteers are always welcome. Um, We have an app available that you could go to our website, childrenshungeralliance.org, and find out how you can sign up to volunteer. Um, And we'd love to have people. And then, obviously, the other important side of it is just donations. Um, People think that if they can only give a little bit, it doesn't really matter. But in fact, a lot of people giving a little can make a huge difference. So there's a lot of power in what one person can do when we put them all together. The holiday season is approaching. Does that change uh, some of the activities that you're involved in or or some of the work that you do? 
Well, the, the only way it really changes it is the uh, critical nature of these weekend meals. I mean, obviously, think about Thanksgiving coming, and most kids are going to be off Thursday and Friday for sure, if not Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so if they really rely on their schools, when they leave school that Tuesday afternoon, maybe they go to an after-school program and get another meal, but then they're going to have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday without food in their home. So to give them a weekend meal box is really their safety net to get them back to school on Monday. So that is the important piece of those weekend boxes. And then obviously in, in uh, December, the kids that are in school, the same thing is true. Um, for our daycare centers and in-home providers, obviously those people and locations are still serving kids through the school break. So the, the hardest part is for those kids that are in school, our school-age children. Just uh, one day, the, the break, as you mentioned, over the whether it be a weekend or a holiday, that's completely disruptive to kids who don't have food at home. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, I mean, it affects them in so many ways. It affects them, obviously, physically because they're hungry, but it also affects them mentally. Most kids look forward to a school break, but many times kids that don't have anything at home are not so excited to have the break because they don't know how they're going to get by. I just can't imagine how, you know, if you've got a a low-income family with, you know, two kids or however many kids, and just think about how each one of us, when we go to the grocery store, how much bigger that bill is, even if you're getting fewer items than you were a year ago, significantly larger. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm an empty nester and have been for a long time. And I made a comment the other day to somebody, I'm sure glad I'm not raising my two boys now um, because I remember what those grocery bills look like. And um, even for people that are usually employed, um, it's tough right now. We're all feeling it. Sure, because, you know, now we've got winter heating bills coming. They're talking about natural gas being 28% higher than a year ago. I mean, all that combined can be tough on just about anybody. But if you're already behind the eight ball, it's devastating. Right. And again, just as a reminder, the families that we're trying to help many times are doing everything they can to support their kids. Um, But they're struggling to make ends meet. And so... Um, these things are all just exasperating that and making it even tougher. Talking with Judy Mobley, CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. Uh, Judy, once again, give us the info on the website where folks can help out and get more information. Yes, our website is childrenshungeralliance.org, and you can go on there and read all about the work that we're doing, and also there'd be a spot if you wanted to volunteer, and there's definitely a spot if you wanted to make a donation. Judy, uh, thanks so much for your time and good luck with your efforts. Thank you. Have a great day. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? 
I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Douglas Shari, who is the director of the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders. Sure. Here at Ohio State University, uh, we have a large center that see patients that are clinically diagnosed with memory issues, mild cognitive impairment, dementia conditions. Plus, the center is also highly involved in clinical research, so we do many studies to evaluate new ways to diagnose and particularly treat those with memory loss and and dementia. And finally, uh, we do a lot of education, maybe something similar to what we're doing today on on the radio here, to try to educate uh, people as well as uh, new physicians to uh, try to come into the field and help other people. And uh, there is a unique opportunity uh, available for folks. Before we get into that, I did want to mention briefly that this study field that you're in is growing so quickly in importance because of our aging population. Very true. Uh, Everyone knows people who are older that have memory loss. And gosh, probably if you reach the age of 60, uh, maybe one in six of us will have uh, afflictions that can impair their thinking or memory to a significant degree. So, and people are living older. So, we really do need to uh, search out and find better ways to treat these conditions. And we are making a lot of good progress. It's such a, a frightening thing. You know, I'm uh, entering that age range now, and I don't feel like anything is going on with me mentally. But when things do begin to happen, Do people realize it? Do they become self-aware and alarmed at what's going on with them? Well, as most listeners will know, there are some individuals that are very in tune to their body and their mind and will notice changes, and others of us that are not in tune to medical issues and may not notice. So there is a wide uh, variation. You have got uh, an opportunity for folks 55 and over to be involved in a study. Yes. We have many uh, studies going on, and this particular one is for people that uh, are 55 and older, and it's involved in people with just a mild cognitive loss. We call that mild cognitive impairment, which is not normal aging, so it's a little bit more than that. So, for example, you pay this important bill finally, and then uh, you find out that, uh, shoot, you paid it twice uh, because you had forgotten the first time, or... You know, that's a little unusual because uh, who has money to do that? Or you um, are constantly uh, 
forgetting your list to go to the store or, you know, you're just more inefficient. You're still able to do things. You can still handle your, your telephone maybe and, and uh, TV remote, but uh, things are getting more complex and more confusing to you. So those are the types of individuals with mild cognitive impairment, uh, and we're more than happy to evaluate people to see if you fit into those types of degree of cognitive loss. So the study is for those individuals, and it is uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health. So it's so important that the uh, NIH is uh, looking at this, and it tests this substance called nicotine, which is a natural substance in our body. Sometimes we think of it more with cigarettes, uh, but it's not has does not have any of the adverse effects cigarettes does. That's the tar and um, substances in the uh, smoke. Uh, if you uh, if you've had ever cigarettes before, which we do not recommend and which are not allowed in this study, by the way, but it uses nicotine, which is critical to stimulate those chemicals in the brain that are responsible for memory and attention. And these are so important for our day-to-day functioning. So we're trying to improve the attention and memory issues that people get that might um, lead to these conditions like Alzheimer's disease that uh, we know so well. And I guess it involves nicotine patches that would be used? Yes. So the nicotine is a form of the patch, so you don't have to take uh, pills. And these are very easily uh, applied and removed. There's no withdrawal effects after the study is finished. Uh, As I said, it's a very normal and natural substance that uh, is often used for people who are trying to quit smoking. Nicotine is particular for uh, stimulating acetylcholine, which is very important in memory circuits. It is designed to help us think better, focus, attention, uh, which is really important for us to understand other people as well. If we're we're not paying attention or focusing, then we do a poor job of uh, remembering what they were telling us. So if people get involved in this study, how hands-on is it? How much time do they need to devote to it? It is really not a time-intense study. Uh, You get medications. You would be given this thing called an informed consent. And this is something that you can read exactly how often the visits are. You just come in periodically to be tested to see if the medication is working. Now, I do want to mention one other thing, if I can. It is very important for us to find better treatments for all people, and that includes whites, blacks, and Hispanics, uh, different ethnicities. Uh, We do know that blacks and Hispanics uh, seem to disproportionately have more issues than whites, Uh, not to a huge degree, but definitely we are all different. And so we need everyone to come in to participate in this study. If you're white, black, Hispanic, you can help other people in your own community if you if we get more information about how these medications may impact you. One medication might help a certain person but may not help so much the other and we just do not have the numbers and participants of black and Hispanics in particular in these clinical trials to adequately help determine if these medications, not just the mind patch, uh, the nicotine patch, but For any clinical trials, uh, we are struggling to find the best treatments for everyone. Talking with Dr. Douglas Shari, he's the director of the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. How do people find out more about this study, and if they want to get enrolled, how do they do it? If 
um, they live in the central Ohio area at Ohio State. Uh, you can call our research center at 614-293-6882. If you live uh, quite a ways from Ohio State, uh, you can call a national number at 866-MIND-150, 866-MIND-150. And there's also a website, Mind study.org. It's outstanding. I, I did want to ask you a couple of real quick questions while I have you on the line. What about these uh, supplements? You see ads on television for supplements that supposedly improve your uh, memory. Are those valid? Uh, they have not been tested in any uh, significant way with people with serious cognitive issues. This is what this uh, nicotine uh, medication is designed for. So they've been looked at in normal aging. They're pretty safe. It is completely unknown whether they help anyone who would have any cognitive issues, but significant such as uh, early Alzheimer's disease or those types of things. So you might take it if you have extra funds or uh, if you feel that uh, you want to try something to help with just normal day-to-day activities, but it is not for someone that has some significant changes in memory or thinking. And uh, I know that there have been some really high-profile studies uh, looking at ways to tackle Alzheimer's, and a couple of promising ones sort of fell through a couple of years ago, but there has been some progress. Do you think this is something that's eventually going to be solved? Alzheimer's will be solved. It's a very solvable type of condition. We know the different proteins and abnormal proteins that build up that cause uh, damage and toxicity in nerve cells and kill them. Um, So we're quite aware of what we can attack. We know the inflammation is there. We're trying to find the right key and the right mixture of these medications that we've made tremendous progress uh, in this fight. It hasn't come to breakthrough drugs yet. Uh, We're sort of around the edges, but it will come, and science will gradually figure out uh, this very complex disease. But I see it as a very treatable condition, maybe not uh, completely curable, if possible, but at least prevent it so that uh, you can live into uh, very old ages without having significant cognitive issues. And this new, uh, very expensive medication that Medicare was uh, dealing with. I know that's that's even controversial among doctors as to whether that's recommended or not. What, what is your take on that? It's been a very well-studied medication, and uh, the FDA approved it. Uh, some people, it's controversial only to the extent that it only showed one out of two studies that were significantly better than placebo, which is better than no studies, of course, and not as good as both studies, so it may not be a uh, you know miracle blockbuster drug, but we've had so many failures in the last 20 years. Uh, a drug that shows some promise is uh, better than not, and the FDA decided it does such a great job at getting rid of this toxic amyloid protein that they would uh, approve it. Other people are saying, well, it's not enough uh, to pay all that much money for it. Uh, it's a great first step. It's fabulous. We're getting rid of amyloid. We're finding better ways. There's three or four drugs on its tail that do similarly and may have a better impact on thinking and cognition. Uh, Maybe we just didn't try it early enough in the course. So uh, we do not want to throw this great drug out. Uh, We want to amend it, improve it, maybe change the timing of it. Uh, So it's a great step and should be considered uh, 
good news for the field of uh, treating for Alzheimer's. Well, when you think of the impact of Alzheimer's and, you know, how important it is to get a handle on it, you know, 10,000 people a day in the U.S. are hitting age 65. 10,000 a day. It's just astounding. Yes, it is. And we want, uh, everyone wants to have a, um, a nice uh, life as you age. And uh, we want to be able to know our grandchildren, for example, or uh, enjoy uh, our living, et cetera, and having a good mind is very critical for that. So do everything you can to keep your mind healthy. Um, you know, eat right and exercise, uh, keep your mind active. Uh, these are all great things as well. And again, the website is mindstudy.org for uh, more information about this study. Anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Shari? Well, we are just very, very appreciative and uh grateful of the altruism of people willing to participate in trials. Uh, particularly, think about it if you uh, are of ethnic, any kind of ethnicity, uh, black, Hispanic especially, we need to uh, find better treatments for everyone, and participating in these trials uh, will help us do that. Dr. Douglas Shari, Director, Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. Thanks so much for your time today, and good luck with the study. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Grace Gostad. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. If you turn 65 this year, you are eligible for Medicare. To help you understand your choices and possibility of financial assistance, the Ohio Department of Insurance is holding Welcome to Medicare events across the state. So join us at a free event near you. Make sure your plan suits your budget and your needs. For more information, contact the Ohio Department of Insurance at 1-800-686-1578 or go online at insurance.ohio.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. 
A divided State Board of Education met again to discuss a controversial Title IX amendment. Once again, they came to no decision. The proposed change rejects the Biden administration's new expansion of Title IX to protect transgender students. Instead of voting on this amended resolution, the board president issued her own resolution. It was met with even more objections. As members complained, they didn't have enough time to read it. That resolution supports parental rights and encourages the General Assembly to enforce local controls of schools, but it removed definitions of biological sex. But the board remains divided on what it should tell schools. So we're not saying anything that the attorney general hasn't already said, but we can't sue people. We can't make law. Denying the reality of biological sex destroys foundational truths upon which education rests and irreparably damages children. What does that mean? Does everyone know that there has never been a single state or district or school in the history of Title IX that has actually lost federal funds? Now, if it can't come to a vote in November, the board will have another meeting in December. A battle is brewing over who should be allowed to make gun laws. Columbus City leaders say they should be able to do it, but state disagrees. The judge's ruling, at least for now, gave the power to the city to address everything from mandating gun locks to banning assault rifles. 10TV's Kevin Landers reports the back and forth involves your safety. Despite the state's attempt to block it, a Franklin County judge ruled in favor of the city of Columbus to develop its own rules on how to curb gun violence. For one mother who lost a son, she believes it's time for cities to take the lead. My son was killed on September 16th of 2021. They were trying to rob him, and at that point is when a gun was pulled and they shot him. The mother of Bryce Persang says the pain of losing her son to gun violence has had a ripple effect on her family all the way down to her nephew. Every time there is a news story about someone being shot and killed, he always asks if if they're talking about his uncle. And he's eight. These are things he shouldn't know. Catherine Persang applauds a judge's ruling that would allow Columbus to consider everything from mandating gun locks to banning assault rifles as a way to curb gun violence. We really need to come together collectively um, and try to figure out a solution to this because we are losing our youth and that is our future. Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein sued the state to allow the city to set its own laws. An assault weapon ban is something that the city of Columbus can now consider and it's something I certainly would support. The news was met with strong resistance from gun supporters like the Buckeye Firearms Association. This is yet another attempt by the city of Columbus to override state law and pass gun control laws they have no right to pass. The whole idea of having statewide preemption regarding firearms is to provide one consistent set of laws throughout the state rather than a patchwork of laws that will entrap and confuse people and infringe on their Second Amendment rights. Starting with something simple as a lockbox, which prior to this ruling, we couldn't even touch to and to, to try to even have the conversation. That's how, that's how devoid of common sense some of these laws out of the state legislature are. As for Catherine Persang, she says gun violence robbed her of the son she never saw grow up and hopes no other family has to live with that memory. We live with the fact that we never truly will know um, the man that he would have become. Catherine Persang says her son's murder remains unsolved, but was told by police they do have two suspects. Reporting from downtown Columbus, Kevin Landers, 10TV News.
And something else Columbus City leaders are considering is limiting how food carts operate in the short north. The proposed changes are positioned as a way to prevent criminal activity. As 10TV's Richard Solomon learned, some people are concerned it would detract from nightlife. The best way to learn is to listen. I think they are a little bit of a nuisance. And understand what people are saying. A city without street meat isn't a safer street. For close to an hour, one by one, they talked. Long, noisy lines form. People then sit on the sidewalk or in the flower beds to eat, many leaving greasy food and trash. And they listened. The chambers of Columbus City Council held a hearing for two proposals that some feel would change nightlife in the city. What took center stage was the mobile food vendor proposal. It would shorten the hours of operation from 3 a.m. to 2 a.m., as well as restrict where carts can set up. Adam Wallace owns several food carts that set up in the short north. He says cutting down that one hour alone could impact his sales by 80 percent. Street vendors themselves are often not the source. On the contrary, conscientious vendors work hard to keep their stalls clean and preserve and provide eyes and ears to help deter crime in the streets. The proposal comes after several crimes happened into the short north this past summer, including fatal shootings. Columbus Police Sergeant Joseph Kermode coordinates the short north crime interdictions program. He says they've seen a lot of violent crime happen near the vendors because it's a popular place people gather once they leave the bar. He says too many times they've dealt with vendors that haven't closed down at 3 a.m. But vendors that block the sidewalk are too close to exits of bars or blocking crosswalks, making people that are waiting in line stand in the street and get hit by cars. So they're not being targeted or attacked. These are safety concerns for the community that we've had to address. Others say noise is an issue, too, saying bars and loud music can disrupt peace. Many voices were heard, hoping their suggestions will be taken into consideration. Please don't change the legislation to make it harder for us to thrive. The next hearing for the noise and mobile food vendor proposal is tentatively set for December 6th. Candidates often seek endorsements to bolster their campaigns, but a viral tweet claims churches cannot endorse politicians. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team looks into that. In some ways, churches have one of the best deals on federal taxes. They neither have to pay them nor file annual paperwork. But a tweet with 10,000 likes claims they can lose their tax-exempt status by backing a political candidate. So let's verify. Can the IRS revoke the tax-exempt status of churches that endorse candidates? Our sources are the IRS, the Johnson Amendment of 1954, Clergy Financial Resources, the United Church of Christ, the California Catholic Conference, and Grace Communion International. In 1954, Congress passed the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits churches, charities, and most other tax-exempt organizations from endorsing candidates. If they do, then they risk losing their tax-exempt status. The IRS says generally these organizations can't show preference for a candidate, but a leader can, if it's clear they're speaking as an individual. This means they can't use official titles or church resources like the pulpit, newsletter, or website to make their endorsement. 
Our sources note politicians can speak to congregants, but all candidates must be given the same opportunity. So, yes, the IRS can revoke the tax-exempt status of churches that endorse candidates, although it's a lengthy process. And the only time the IRS successfully revoked a church's tax-exempt status was in 1992, when Branch Ministries sponsored newspaper ads urging Christians not to vote for Bill Clinton. The United Church of Christ and the IRS note under the rules, churches are allowed to take positions on public policy issues such as abortion or immigration without endorsing specific candidates. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. Congratulations are in order for 12 of Central Ohio's best and brightest corporate, academic, and nonprofit leaders. Women for Economic Leadership and Development held its annual calendar reception at the Ohio State House. Each November, Weld honors 12 women who are making bold moves through mentoring their expertise and influence. Weld CEO Barb Smoot told me that the organization chooses to have the event in November for a reason. And intentionally, we have this event um, very early in November, just as a reminder, as people look to make a decision when they're at the ballot box, you know, we're not for just R or D or I or anything in between. We're about outstanding leadership. And there's always a choice that people can make, um, whether they're selecting a leader in a company, um, a leader in government, or a leader of a nonprofit. Be thoughtful about who you select to represent you and who you select to lead your organization. And we say congratulations to all of the Weld calendar representatives. Thank you all for joining us here today on Face the State. We wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with a look at what's on this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Coming up on Face the State, the midterm election results assure the Republican Party will continue to rule at the state house. We look at what that means for checks and balances and you. Claims of election fraud came in on Election Day. Our verified team takes a look at what's real and what's not. Join us for Face the State at 1130. You want to be a state trooper in Ohio? Details about how that can happen next on Columbus Perspective. It might be hard to imagine, but there's a place where you can find a restaurant on every corner. A place where you can eat like a king for as little as a dollar. It might be hard to imagine, but this is the same place where the school lunches aren't just delicious, they're themed with palate pleasers like mozzarella stick Mondays, taco Tuesdays, and French Fridays. Heck, even pizza counts as a vegetable here. This is a place where the fast food just keeps getting faster. You can even order delivery right from your video game console. And how's the food, you ask? Well, it is to die for. Don't believe us? Just ask the friends and family of the 300,000 who did last year. Welcome to the state of America. Welcome to Obesity USA. Population 115 million and getting bigger by the day. To learn more, go to visitobesity.org. That's visitobesity.org. Brought to you by the Pennington Biomedical Research Foundation. Hi, I'm Dom Tiberi. Nine years ago, we lost our daughter Maria to a distracted driving accident. To honor her life, we have pledged to educate young people on the dangers of distracted driving. 
We funded simulators and visited schools to inspire more than 120,000 young drivers to stay safe. Help spread Maria's message in your school. Contact us at mariasmessage at 10tv.com. And remember, distracted driving is dangerous driving. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Ohio State Highway Patrol Trooper Jessica McIntyre, who is a recruiter for the State Patrol. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about job openings uh, available through the State Highway Patrol. Yes. This was something that uh, your new superintendent, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Jones, who just started a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that he mentioned right out of the starting gate was that there is a need for troopers in Ohio. Yes, there is, and I think everybody is looking for people right now, but our um, preliminary stage is just to become a state trooper. is just that you need to be 20 to 34 years of age, have a high school diploma or a GED, be a United States citizen, and also have a valid driver's license. Okay. How many troopers are there in Ohio, and, and how many do you normally have or need? Right. Well, everybody's in need. We've had a lot of retirement. Um, but we're right now, I, I'm not sure about the number, but I can just tell you that we are looking for people. This is one of those uh, unusual jobs where you, you actually get paid while you're training. Yes, it's wonderful. Um, we do have paid training. It's $22 an hour currently. And then once, of course, once you get out on the road, you get out of our academy, which is 24 to 26 weeks, um, you're looking at maybe around 63000 a year, um, $28 an hour or more. Not bad. Now, when people decide to do this, this is pretty intensive, and it's actually living uh, on the grounds of your training facility, right? Yes, and that's what I tell people. I'm like, we train you, we feed you, we clothe you, we give you, you know, room and board, but we don't bathe you. So basically, <laughs> everything is given to you. We give you the um, training that you need to be prepared for being out on the roadway. So, uh, you know, when you talk to people who have an interest in it, uh, I'm sure that you're kind of sizing them up because uh, it, it takes uh, not your average person, I would say, that would want to do this and would be qualified or able to do it. So what are the kind of characteristics you're looking for in people? Um, we're looking for people that basically do want to become officers. They want to do the job. Um, yes, we look sometimes for people that are athletic or what have you, but I say if I can do this job, anybody can do it. Now, I do come from, um, you know, playing sports over the years and in high school and college, um, but it really does not matter. As I said, the training that we give you, um, it prepares you for um, being out on the road. So it doesn't matter any walk of life, and we're always looking always for a diverse workforce. And you mentioned age 20 to 34, and so what, give us a, a general idea of the kind of fitness level, because I, I guess that's part of the training, right? You have to pass certain benchmarks. Right. Well, the first thing we start off with, of course, is taking the written exam. Once an individual passes the written exam, then they move on to the physical, and the physical only consists of doing push-ups, sit-ups, and a mile-and-a-half run. Now, when I say only, sometimes that is a struggle for people because they think they can just, you know, come up to our academy where we normally have testing, where we also hold individual testing in certain areas as well. But anyway, they don't think that they have to do any type of, you know, physical regimen before they come, and then, unfortunately, they fail our physical. So I just always tell people if this is what you want to do, um, 
concentrate on doing push-ups, sit-ups, and the mile and a half run. That's basically all that we do. Now, once you get into the academy, there's more physical activity that we do, but it's mainly a lot of um, cardio. Okay. How fast do you have to do the mile and a half? Uh, for being at uh, between 20 and 29 years of age, you need to do it in 13 minutes and 58 seconds. After that, after 30 to 34, you need to do it in 14 minutes and 33 seconds, and that is for a male. Uh, for females, it's a little bit longer, um, from 20 to 29, 17 minutes and 11 seconds. And then, of course, from 30 to 34, I think it's 18 minutes and some, some minutes there. Okay. All our information is at statepatrol.ohio.gov, and it tells you what you need to do as, as far as being a male and a female, how many push-ups and um, sit-ups that you need to do um, to qualify to move on to the next thing in the process. And I will tell you, in our process, as I stated before, it's written in the physical. Then from there, you move on to the polygraph and then background. Then there's a drug screen, and then you'll do psychological, and you will do another physical assessment before you come into our academy. And it's important that we see people that are keeping up with their physical regimen before they come into the academy because, as I said, you'll be doing a lot of physical things in our academy to be prepared. It's really interesting. You know, next time that uh, somebody sees a, a trooper, maybe they'll think about uh, how much effort. And th- that's uh, we haven't even gotten in the classroom yet. <laughs> All the stuff that they have right. to learn about being a cop. <laughs> yes. So um, yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's a rewarding career, I will tell you that. Um, and it's pretty much how people, you know, um, everybody has their purpose. And I know with Colonel Jones now coming into um, his new position, uh, we are now, you know. Purpose, pur- purposeful in our service that we do um, when we're out in the community and serving uh, the public. Talking with Trooper Jessica McIntyre, she's a recruiter with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. What made you want to do it? <laughs> I had a friend at the time. I actually um, had gone to school in Defiance, Ohio, and then I had transferred down to Kentucky. And uh, I was getting ready to get on with Kentucky State. And uh, at that time, um, they just didn't have the same type of pay as uh, Ohio did. And my friend was like, well, why don't you come on up this way and, and try, you know, try out for becoming, you know, a state trooper. And here I am. Wow. You know, it, it's such a, an interesting job and yet fraught with danger, obviously. I mean, if you stop somebody along the, the uh, you know, the interstate, no matter what time of day it is, when you're walking up to that vehicle, you have to be prepared for anything. You do. And for the most part, I will tell you, you, you know, you see things on media, but I, for, for the most part, I, I have positive encounters with people. Um, for the most part, you will hear people say to you, thank you for what you do. And I also tell people, thank you for what you do. Um, it's what makes the world go round. Everybody has their place. And sometimes this job is for people and sometimes it isn't. But um, for the most part, as I said, um, there's so many um, different positions that you can go into um, with the patrol, which makes it kind of neat, too, um, specialty positions. So we have uh, K-9. We have our SRT team. Um, we have EPU, which is our executive protection unit that covers the governor. Um, so there's a lot of neat things that you can do in your career with the state patrol. And when you go through the training, then you're talking about the training academy, which is uh, out by the state fairgrounds. Yes, it is. Our academy is um, right in the heart of it um, at 740 East 17th Avenue. 
And so you actually, as we said, uh, actually live at the facility, and it's about six months. Yes, you do. And uh, as I said, no, it's, it's not the greatest time, but when you have, you keep your eye on where you're trying to get to. But again, all our training is, is preparing you for what you may encounter when you're out on the road. But the, for the most part, it's to be professional and to treat people um, the way that you would like to be treated. How uh, akin is the training or the atmosphere to the military? Uh, yes, we train like the Marines. That's what we normally say. But, you know, when you first come in, you're, you're going to get uh, yelled at. Um, <laughs> and, again, people will may say things to you out on the road and, and, and call you different names and call you funny or whatever, but you pretty much have to let that go um, because you don't know that individual. You don't know what they've gone through. And um, sometimes, we you know, we play so many different hats being officers. Um, sometimes we're a counselor, um, a doctor, uh, a friend, whatever it is at that moment that the individual needs. And uh, we, we do get, um, you know, compliments from the public sometimes when we just take a minute and sit and listen to someone um, that needs to be heard at that time. And I've had that happen in my career. And uh, the lady at that time sent a letter into my post just thanking me for listening to her because that was the first time that she was able to kind of release some things that she had been going through. And I was just grateful that I took that time to understand and to kind of, uh, you know, see that she needed more than, than just me stopping her. And unfortunately, yes, I still gave her a citation, um, but it ended up being, you know, helpful for her. Well, these days, the environment, you know, with police officers and the public, it is complicated. There are strong feelings for and against that probably weren't there 20, 30 years ago just because of yeah. things that have happened over the years. How much of that is addressed during the course of training? Um, yes, we do have training for that just to kind of help people to understand, you know, um, people with disabilities and things of that nature, to be kind of cognizant of that. Um, but just, you know, take a minute to assess your situation instead of just immediately just going in and saying this individual, whatever it may have been, whether they're doing something wrong or right or what have you, but just assessing the situation um, in a way that you have a great outcome in the situation. When you're in a confrontation with uh, someone who's perhaps resisting arrest or or simply not following orders that you're telling them to uh, follow, how much uh, do you just simply continue to rely on your training without all of a sudden getting in your head the idea that, boy, I've got to watch it. I've got to watch what I'm doing. Cameras are on me. My own camera's on me. What am I going to do? Right. Well, again, we do revert. You do revert back to training. And sometimes you have somewhat of the same type of situation, perhaps, and you kind of look back, how did I handle this or whatever. But um, as I said, with the training that we give, we try to assess the situation properly. And sometimes, it, you know, it might go the wrong way, for, but for the most part, I would like to say, only with I can only speak with the highway patrol. Most of our situations, you know, have a good turnout, but there's sometimes that just don't. Um, and uh, again, it comes down, yes, your training and just also maturity. Um, we look at those things as well um, when you're first coming in um, and just having common sense about the situation. But everybody has a different situation because I can't speak for everybody when we get out on the road and we're encountered with someone that uh, may be nefarious, meaning evil. Um, but uh, we hope that we have a good outcome either way it goes. Talking with Trooper Jessica McIntyre, a recruiter with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Well, one of the other things that's uh, difficult about it and, and something that 
you know, most of us thankfully don't have to uh, encounter our early moments following uh, a horrible traffic accident on an interstate. Yes. So um, that's part of our bread and butter, we, we say, is uh, handling crashes. Um, but again, assessing the situation and, and making sure that we get the appropriate um, protocol out there to help in the situation if there um, happens to be a, a serious uh, crash. But for the most part, we, we handle um, what is called ACDAs, where people are basically hitting someone from behind because they're not perhaps you know paying attention or they're in a hurry. And of course, one of our things is distracted driving is one of our uh, what we look for as well with people looking down at their phones and and doing other things other than what they're supposed to be doing and getting to point A to point B in a safe way. But um, again, um, that's that's part of what we do, handling crashes as well as as also giving tickets. And we also give warnings too. It's not always giving a ticket if, if need be. Um, but that's just being out in the public and, and serving um, the best that we can. So if somebody wanted to become a state trooper or, or work within the Highway Patrol and they're hearing this and they're thinking, yeah, I've been meaning to get on the website, take a look at it, how quickly could they be into training and, and become a trooper? Right. As I said, they would go to statepatrol.ohio.gov, and basically it's up to how fast they get their paperwork in. Uh, so once they start with the written, we just ask that they have all the forms and everything are on our website. It's very accessible and it's print-friendly. Um, they can print off their um, pre-employment form and their vision and hearing. They do have to have their vision and hearing done before they can move on to the polygraph. So it basically deals with them getting in their paperwork, and then when they get to their background and can't get in the paperwork that our investigator needs for them to get in at that time. And uh, so it could take maybe three months or six months now, mind you, um, when we were more popular, if you want to say, and that's for all law enforcement and, and jobs, period, we would have a waiting list. Um, people would be on there for years. Wow. Um, waiting to become officers and so i think we're making a comeback um so but slowly but surely what's the maximum number uh, that are in a class when you're training it just depends but i will tell you sometimes we do have what is called an attrition rate and we do have about 20 to 30 percent um that will just kind of drop out and it's not for them but then they turn back around and be like wow i should have done shouldn't have done that and then sometimes they come back to us and want to redo the class again. So, yeah, so um, people just feel like, you know, this is not for me, and then they change their mind and say, hey, this was for me, and then we see them in another class later on down the road. So once you go through the training and are ready to become a trooper, I'm assuming that you're assigned to a post and you go through a training period there where you're following a veteran around or something? Well, yes. Um, So basically, while you're in your class, of course you want to do your best, so there is a ranking. So if you're first in your class, you get three choices. Everybody basically gets three choices, but it's whatever's available. So the person that's first in the class, whatever's available at that time, and most likely it will be a post that they've asked to be at, that's where they will go. But right now we're trying to keep people close to, you know, their home area. We would like to do that, but sometimes people get placed in areas, you know, not so close to home, but they do have the ability to transfer back. Um, My first assignment was Portsmouth, Ohio, and I'm from Cincinnati, and so I was able to transfer back within a year um, to my, you know, close to my home area. 
So that is a possibility so people don't think that they're just stuck in some place. And then even if it's not your home area and you want to go out and venture to some other place in Ohio, you certainly have the ability to do that. Interesting. Once again, it is uh, Trooper Jessica McIntyre. She She's a recruiter for the Ohio State Highway Patrol. And again, what's the website where people can find out more information? Again, they can go to statepatrol.ohio.gov. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. Thank you for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.